good morning, almost afternoon. Yeah, so so glad to be here. My name's Fred. I get to be the lead pastor here. And, and as I've been preparing this message and as I've been praying for us, I really do hope that we leave here today, uh, whether you're here in person or whether you're tuned in, I hope we leave our time together with more faith and trust in Jesus than we had when we walked in. All right, so here we are. Uh, I think I can say this, firmly planted in 2023 now, right? Um, uh, the holidays are behind us. Um, curious, anybody still have Christmas decorations up? Wow. Okay, on purpose? Let's see, I know, I know you. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Um, that being said, holidays are behind us, right? Also, um, also, some of our New Year's resolutions are behind us already, too, right? Like, seriously, I, 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 there's this study that, that, that uh, polled 4,000 people that had New Year's resolutions, and most, most, their New Year's resolutions didn't even last the month of January. Right? They also asked about healthy habits, about working out, and within three months, only 10% of the people were still working out uh, when they had started in January. So what that means to me is that the time to join the gym is April. Right? That's the, that's the time they're looking for, for more memberships. L- let me ask you this. Have you ever experienced this where like, you set out to make a change, right? and it lasted just a little bit, right? but not nearly as long as you would hope. Anybody ever experienced that? Mark Twain said, to quit smoking is easy. I've done it many times. <laughs> right? Here's the deal. You know why this happens? It's this, because change is hard. Right? Change is just hard. At least for me it is. Last year I had uh, the goal, I, at, this was at some point in the year, it wasn't New Year's, but it was at some point in the year, I was like, okay, I'm going to memorize all of Isaiah 42, right? And I was going to do it verse by verse and just kind of work my way through. I got five and a half verses in and then just kind of stopped, right? I've had the same goal wait for four years now, four years. I was really close and then we hit the pandemic and, you know, pandemic. So that didn't happen, right? Like, like, like have, have, you ever, have, have you ever experienced that? But here's what's interesting about change. Yes, change is hard. But one of the things I've noticed too is that sometimes change isn't hard, right? Sometimes a defining conversation, right, a right relationship, a specific event can produce change that otherwise was really, really hard. I remember, I remember a friend telling me something that I did, that he saw me do. He saw me do it to him, and it was something that, that uh, he didn't like. It was something that bothered him. And so as we were in the car just driving somewhere, he said, hey, can I bring up something? I was like, sure, what, 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 what? And so he told me what it was that bothered him. He had specific examples. He shared how it made him feel. He shared how it affected our relationship. And here's what this did. This conversation with this trusted friend brought this behavior to my attention. And it was something that, honestly, I hadn't even seen before. And it changed it. Well, it mostly changed it. What happens now is I, as I do it a whole lot less, but when I do it, I notice it. And I go back and apologize, right? But that all happened because of that one conversation. 
right? And events can do this. Because of the events of 9-11, airport security changed almost overnight, right? So sometimes, sometimes something for us to consider is that this, sometimes change isn't always hard, right? Change is hard, but sometimes change isn't always hard, right? Last week, we got to see Jesus teach the people that he was with and through them teach us about, about the endless hope of God, right? That God keeps pursuing, he keeps reaching out, he, he's always there, he's always with us. And Jesus shared this parable with them, and like I said, through them to us, because I think we need to see a God of endless hope. Right? We need to see a God who is always there, always reaching, always pursuing. And we particularly need to see it because of what's going to happen in the rest of chapter 12. So go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 27. And here's what we're going to see in these verses. We're going to see Jesus uh, rebuke some people that are coming to him to, to test him, to trap him, to ask him questions uh, that they already know uh, what his answers are going to be, right? They want to trap him in his words. And here's what I mean by rebuke, because I don't know about y'all, but like I've been on the, like, like the one that I described, I've been on the good side of, of a rebuke, and I've also been on the bad side of a rebuke, Right? I've been in a rebuke that wasn't necessarily about changing behavior to, to get me more in line with God's word. It was about something else. What I'm talking about is I'm talking about we're going to focus in on what a good biblical rebuke is. Because this is what we're going to see Jesus do. And a rebuke is when someone has a conversation with you to move a specific behavior or a specific belief from unbiblical to biblical. That's what a rebuke is. It's a conversation with you to move a specific behavior or belief from unbiblical to biblical. And Jesus is going to rebuke these religious leaders, but he's going to do it, remember, in this big parentheses of an endlessly hopeful God, always pursuing, always there, always reaching out and always with us because he's doing this because, um, because he wants to see them change their life from unbiblical to biblical, right? And so here's the way I want us to think about a rebuke. A rebuke is actually an invitation to a more biblical life. That's what a rebuke is. And if we receive a, a rebuke as coming from an endlessly hopeful God, that's an invitation to change, right? If not, otherwise, a rebuke just lands on deaf ears. And so let's watch what happens. Let's watch what happens today, because here's what I hope. I hope there's an invitation for each of you to change something in your life from unbiblical to biblical, right? So let's look at Chapter 12, verse 13, it says this. It says, and they, sent him to, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, the past few weeks, we've seen, seen Jesus engage with priests, scribes, and elders. Right? That's who, that's who he's been engaging with. Well, now they send in some reinforcements. Right? Now they've got the Pharisees. And here's what the Pharisees are known for. The Pharisees are known for their obedience to God's word. 
right? They knew God's word and they were righteous and quite honestly, a lot of times very self-righteous about their obedience to God's word. They are the perfectionist in the crowd, right? There is nothing that they do that is wrong. They are the self-righteous type in everything that they do, at least everything that they see themselves doing, is right if not perfect, right? They're the type of people who give the rebukes. They don't receive them. Because this is, what, this is what, what perfect people do. They tell others what is wrong, but don't handle being told where they're wrong, right? No elbows, right? This is what perfect people do. Now, the Herodians, here's what's interesting. Jesus is talking to them, and Jesus is talking to this other group of Herodians that were sent to him to, to be together to trap Jesus. The Herodians are just the opposite, right? Because what they had done is they had put pleasing and working with Rome above God's word. That was their filter. That was their priority. They were Jewish, but remember, Israel was occupied and ruled by Rome. And so they had said, you know what, we want to please the government before we please God. And yet, these two groups were coming together. These two groups, right, that, that were coming together to trap Jesus. The Pharisees, who give rebukes based on perfection and self-righteousness, and the Herodians, who give rebukes based on politics, right? If we will, just to bring it to our times, it is the ultra-conservative and the ultra-liberal coming together is what this is. Now, what's that saying? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what these two are. They're two enemies coming together to trap Jesus. Let's look at verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Anybody buying it? No, you know what that's called? It's called flattery. In, 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 in the scriptures, the word flattery is pictured as a smooth tongue. right? And here's why. Because nothing sticks to it, especially truth. A person who is known for flattery will say anything that they need to say to get what they want. And, and, and the fact that, that nothing sticks to a flattering tongue, right, especially truth, well, that is especially true here. Because, because what's interesting is they say, they say you know, you're, Jesus, you're not swayed by appearances. This is true. They're saying you don't have favorites. That's not true. Jesus has been very clear in his teaching. He does have favorites. He favors the humble and rebukes the proud. He has favorites. So they're not speaking the truth about Jesus. Right? All they're doing is they want these, this favorable response from him. But Jesus, pretty smart. Look at verse 14, the rest of it. Here's their question. Their question is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, this is their question, and it's, it's their trap. Their, their, their question is, you know, Jesus, you're, you're smart, you're wise. 
Should we align with this government that has overtaken us, this government that has overrun us, this government that has overpowered us, this government that is abusing us, should we align with them or should we not? Now, here's the deal. So the question isn't just about taxes. What they're asking is, Jesus, should we separate from Rome or shouldn't we? Because this is a government we can't support, so should we separate from them? Right? Does Israel need to separate themselves from Rome completely? And here's a good question. And it's a question, honestly, that, that I'm sure we've all asked in some way, shape, or form. But when we disagree with the government that's over us, how do we support, right? Should we support a government we don't agree with or not? Like, it's a, it's a good question. Well, let's see how Jesus responds. Jesus says, but knowing their hypocrisy, you can put in parentheses, busted, right? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and look at it. So here's here's what he does. You see, Jesus knew they were saying one thing and doing another, right? Their question was designed to trap Jesus, right? Because if he said... Right, that, no, we shouldn't support Rome. Here's what would happen. He'd be labeled an extremist, and he would be arrested by Rome, and he would be taken away, and they would win. Right? They would have their spotlight back, because Jesus is now a rebel. If he said that it is lawful to pay taxes to Rome, well, now you're just a Roman sympathizer. You're one of them, Right? They wanted Jesus to pick a side, and they tried to throw a question out that no matter how he, he answered, it would be the wrong answer. But Jesus being Jesus, what he did is he led them to truth, right? Because what happens is, look at verse 16. He asked for them to, to bring a coin, and they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Right? Now, one of the commentators said something that I had always passed over in this account of Jesus' life, about what it meant for him to ask for a Daenerys. Because Jesus asked for a coin, and they had one. Now, here's what I found out. If we, if we have the picture, can you put the picture of the coin that's up? All right, so this is um, the coin that they would have given Jesus. I don't know if you can see that from a distance, but that's Caesar's face right there. And then it's something in a different language written to the side, right? So it's, it's this coin that has Caesar's face. Now, here's the deal. In Jesus' time, the Roman tax... Um, and even the tithe in the church, right, the church that Rome built, Herod's temple, right, had to be paid with silver coins. And here's where Rome was being Rome. Because by Roman law, if you were Jewish, you couldn't make or produce any coins that were made with anything except bronze. And so if you wanted to pay tax, if you wanted to give a tithe in the temple, you had to do it with this silver coin. You had to do it with a coin that had Caesar's head on it. If you were a good Hebrew, you would have an objection to that because the coin that's on here has a picture of a person who was a ruler. And that would be considered idolatry to have an image of a person 
in a position that you were paying homage to because this coin was especially idolatrous because the inscription that's around Caesar's head is a slogan declaring that Caesar is God. And so it was this coin that they had that said Caesar is God. And their question is, should we pay taxes or should we not? And what this commentator said is how easy it was for them to produce this coin. That if they were really concerned about the idolatry of Rome, they wouldn't have had the coin to begin with. Right? And so Jesus' point is this. They didn't have a problem using Caesar's money, so give Caesar his taxes. You've already shown by the fact that you have this coin, you don't have a problem, right? It'd be like, it'd be like today, it'd be like, it'd be like a truck driver saying, I can't pay taxes anymore because I think it's unbiblical to support an unbiblical government by paying taxes. Well, Jesus' response would be like, man, you're a truck driver and you drive on the roads that those taxes paid for? So pay the taxes so that the roads can stay safe. Right? That's what, that's what he's saying. But that's not all that he's saying. Because he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You know, you're already used to using them. Pay the tax. And give to God what is God's. Right? Now next week, we're going to see Jesus tell the people that are right there, that they are to love their Lord, their God, with all their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength. You see, here's what they want to do. They want to separate. They want to separate what they do from what they believe. They believe idolatry is wrong, but obviously they're okay with it because they've got these coins that declare Caesar is God. And Jesus is calling their bluff on it because he's saying, pay to Caesar what Caesar's, but... Give to God what is God. Because you see, they want to separate what they do from what they believe. They want to separate what they do from what is in the Holy Scriptures that they claim to be perfect in following. Because what they're saying is that we can believe one thing in here and do something different out there. Y'all, I was at... I was uh, in Dallas at this men's Bible study, large church, and, and uh, um, Tony Evans was teaching. If you've ever heard Tony Evans teach, he is an animated, brilliant preacher of God's Word. And um, he started preaching, and somebody said amen or, you know, like, responded to him, you know? And it was so, I've never seen a preacher do this. First time somebody did that to me, I, I, I didn't know what to do. I said, thank you. I didn't know. I didn't know. Here's what Tony Evans did. He stopped what he was preaching, and he goes, you know what? He said, I'm used to, to you know, people reacting to when I preach, and I'm used to, to getting feedback when I preach, but here's the deal. If you say amen in here and aren't living it out there, I need you to just be quiet. And I was like, sermon done. <laughs> you know? But he kept on going. But he did what Jesus is doing to them because Jesus won't allow them and he won't allow us to separate our beliefs from our practices. He won't let us hold biblical beliefs and unbiblical practices. And here's why. Because this is what Jesus is confronting. 
If we do, what happens is our unbiblical behavior takes over our biblical beliefs. Right? That's what happens. That's why change is so important. That's why change is so hard. That's why Jesus is calling them hypocrites. Because he wants them to not be hypocrites anymore. That idea, our unbiblical behavior taking over our biblical beliefs, y'all, we see it today. Gosh, January 6th, people held up their Bible and screamed, hang Mike Pence. I don't care what you believe politically, I care what you believe biblically, and that ain't right. Right? It's what allowed people in the 60s and 70s, even as late as the 80s, 90s, and today, right, show up in church on Sunday, and then back in history, go lynch people, men, women, and children because of their color of their skin on Monday. Women would teach Sunday school, Sunday, show up at their kids' school on Monday and line up by the front door and scream racial slurs and and profanity at black students that were being forced for all practical reasons to come to that school. Same people. Why? Because unbiblical behavior will eventually surpass your biblical beliefs. All right, let's move on. Because here's the deal, y'all. We all do it in different ways. I used extreme examples right then, but that idea is what keeps us returning to our own habitual sins. When you're caught in an habitual sin, it's an opportunity and an invitation to live a more biblical life and to change that unbiblical behavior to match your biblical beliefs. All right, verse 18 because he's got another group of people. It says, And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Now, the, res- the, the Sadducees were actually a very small group of, of Hebrews that uh, believed that the true God of the true Bible was found in the first five books of the Scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And one of their marks of their theology was that they didn't believe in a resurrection, because they believed it's not found in the first five books of the Bible. And if it's found, if it's not found in the first five books of the Bible, I don't want to believe it. It's like people today that say that they only base their faith on the red letters in their Bible, right? Just what Jesus said, that's all I'm going to base my faith on. Now, that's a great start, but you have to look at what Jesus said in the context of everything else that was going on in the Scriptures, Right? But that's them. That's the Sadducees. And I heard somebody tell me once, the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. And so that's sad, you see. And that's how I always remember who they are. Now you will too. Congratulations. Right? But, but here's, here's, here's their question. Right? Because they think this is the question. Where are we? Verse 18. Verse 18 says this, And the Sadducees came to him and say that, uh, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no children, the man must, uh, the man must take the widow uh, and raise up offspring for his brother. Right? So what he's doing is, is, is the Sadducees are referencing a part of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25, 
that is there in God's law to protect uh, family property and inheritance. And so it's, imagine if a, if a husband and, and wife get married and so she moves into the family land, right? And he dies and they don't have any kids. The, the law is there to say, well, this is how the family stays, the land stays with the family instead of going to her family. Is that now if there is an unmarried brother, the unmarried brother marries this woman and has kids with her. And so that keeps the land and the inheritance in the family. It's really odd to us. Right? Like it really puts weight on when we say in premarital counseling, you're not just marrying the person, you're marrying their family. Like, I hope they went over that lesson in their premarital counseling because that was like a real deal, right? Right? It's odd to us, but to them, to a, to a society that, that lives off of farming and ranching and the land, like keeping the land in a family is, is critically important. Well, look at the question that they have for Jesus because it's, it's, it's a funny one. There were seven brothers. This is verse 20. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, um, and the first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, <laughs> we don't believe there's a resurrection, but in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For she had seven, uh, for, for the seven had her as a wife. Now here's the y'all, there are so many things wrong with that question. So many things, right? But one woman, seven husbands in the resurrection, whose will she be? Verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? In other words, like that's another busted because they valued themselves on, no, 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 we know the true scriptures and we know the true God. And Jesus looks at them and says, actually, you don't know the Bible or God, based on this question. Right? And so, verse 25. For when they raise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? So now he's going into their world, going into their territory. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Right? Now here's the deal. What Jesus does is he references Moses' interaction with God through a burning bush, right? And this was in the five books of the Bible that the Sadducees said are sacred. And God said, I am, not I was. Because here's the deal. If he said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead. But he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are alive. It's not just God that is living on. It is them. And he looks at them and says, you are wrong. Y'all, when was the last time somebody looked you in the eyes about the Bible and said, you are wrong? That's bold, isn't it? 
especially for a man who has no training in a fancy seminary, no training as a biblical teacher to stand up and look at theologians and say, you don't even know the scriptures or the gods you claim to worship. You are wrong. I wonder if we need some of that in our life. Right? We need sometimes people to look at us and go, no, man, like I hear what you're saying, but you're wrong. This is the God of the Bible. And not based on feelings, not based on emotions, and I think those things are critically important, but based on the truth of God's word. Church, that's what we need. We need people in our life that are, are like Jesus in that sense. And we'll look at us and go, I hear you, but you're just wrong. right? Because, because here's why these guys had this completely wrong view of God and wrong view of the Scriptures. And, and here's what we know. That's called theology, like the study of God. Their theology was way off. And here's what we know about theology. The wrong theology not only gives you the wrong answers, but it gives you something that's much more powerfully wrong. The wrong theology does this. Wrong theology gives you the wrong questions, not just the wrong answers. Because here's the deal. These, these, these Sadducees had Jesus standing right in front of them. They had the very person of God standing right in front of them. And their question was about some made-up case study that might have happened, but probably not. And instead, wouldn't it have been a better question for Jesus? Here's the deal. We have this question. We can't figure it out. Right? What happens in this scenario? Or even better, Jesus, what happens to the widow whose husband dies, she's childless, she's gone through all the brothers, and now what happens? How can we care for her? How can we love her? How can we make sure that the land stays in the family and still honor God's law? How can we care for this woman? But instead, they make up this question. You see, church, in both of these cases, Jesus challenges their wrong beliefs, right? The first group wanted to separate their beliefs, and the, and the, and the second group were just wrong in their beliefs, right? Because you see, here's what, here's what an endlessly hopeful God does, is that Jesus correct, corrects our wrong beliefs, that's, what he, that's part of what he does for us. Not only does he save us, like, which is a correction of a wrong belief, Salvation is where, all, where you, by the grace of God and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, you realize, oh, Jesus really is the Savior that he said he was. That is a correction of a wrong belief. And that corrections of wrong beliefs carries on the rest of your life. I remember sitting in seminary with this 80-year-old guy who would come and deliver bread to the seminary. For the, he would go to grocery stores and get stale bread and bring it there because we couldn't afford bread. And so we would take stale bread home, throw it in the oven, heat it up, and it was great, right? But to sit down and talk to him and to talk about how Jesus continually changes him at 80 years old was good and scary for me to see, Right? You see, this is why we come to church. This is why I teach the Word of God. 
Because we all, including me, y'all, this is us. This isn't you, this is us. We all have wrong beliefs that we need God's word to correct in us. It's why one of our values is in God's word. It's why we gather together in groups called growth groups or focus groups because we need our beliefs corrected by Jesus. And in those groups, yeah, we share lives together, we make friends, but, but my hope is what happens in those groups is that our wrong behaviors and our wrong beliefs are changed to become more in line with God's word, right? And here's what I know, that that change is also slow and steady, slow and steady most of the time. Because here's the deal, y'all, when our beliefs change, we change. That's where change starts is with belief, right? For me, I know like these light bulb moments when I go, aha, that's when I know like something's changing deep inside. When, 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 when I'm talking to someone, like this conversation that I had with this guy, when he shared with me what it meant to him, what it meant to our relationship, um, uh, what it meant to the character of God, like, like I went, aha, oh. It's like these light bulb moments. That's when our beliefs are being changed. And maybe your light bulb moment is, it needs to be about Jesus, that you thought of Jesus as this good teacher, this, this wise leader, this, this, this person who is, who is so phenomenal that he changed history. Well, maybe this light bulb moment is he said he was much more than that. He said he was God. And he said there was no other way to experience a relationship with God than through him. And here's the deal. At some point, you have to deal with that statement that Jesus made. Do you believe it or do you not? Will you take Jesus at his word or will you not? And if you do, then let today be the day you say yes to him. And when we close our eyes and pray, like maybe that will be the first time where you can say in a prayer to God that you are giving your life to, to Jesus. That you trust him in his word. You trust him that he is the savior that you need. And you say yes to his invitation of dealing with the power and penalty of your sin and giving you this, 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 this ever-present relationship with the God who loves you and created you. Many of you in this room have already done that. And so can I give you some potential light bulb moments that maybe you need? Right? We like to divide our behavior from our beliefs as well. And when we do, our, our unbiblical behavior at times becomes more prevalent than our biblical belief. Well, change happens when our behavior and our, belie- and, and, and our beliefs match up, right? When they line up with God's word. And so church, as I say that, do you know what in your life I'm talking about? Do you know that unbiblical behavior that you're, you're drawn to? Do you know that unbiblical behavior that keeps luring you in? That's the thing that I'm talking about because underneath that is a belief that needs to change. And are you willing to, to go there? Are you willing to deal with that belief and put it before God's word and, and see what God's word says about it? Do you just need to confess it and get it out in the open? If so, we've got a prayer team here and they will meet you in the back and they are safe people. 
And you can tell them what you need to tell them, and they will pray with you for that. Also, maybe as your pastor, can I say this in love? Maybe some of you are just wrong. You're wrong in your beliefs about who God is. You're wrong in your beliefs about who Jesus is. And the deal is, we all think we're right in our beliefs until we see it in God's word. And so to you, here's, what, here's, my, here's my, my application for you, my challenge to you, my encouragement to you, is to keep doing this. Let's keep gathering together as a church who teaches God's word. And every time you walk into this place, you say to God that your heart and your soul is good soil for his word to do the work that only it can do. You get into a growth group, you get into a focus group, all of those are based on God's word. And you tell God your heart is good soil. And your heart is willing and wanting to line up with God's word. Because here's what happens. If we do that, slowly but surely, we will be a group of people where our unbiblical beliefs slow down, maybe even stop. And our biblical beliefs get more, I mean, our beliefs get more in line with the word of God that, that, that we hold in our hands. Y'all, let's be that church. Right? All right, that's all I got. <laughs> let's pray. Jesus, you, um, you are good and you are endlessly hopeful challenging us, drawing us closer to you as we lift you up, as we, as we know your word better, as we, as we understand who you are more clearly. And so, God, I pray that even in these, in these songs, even in my teaching, that you would do that, that you would help us to see you and to see your truth clearly and that we would respond to it rightly. In Christ's name I pray, amen.